We open our word today on Acts 13, 36 through 48, as well as 13 through 16. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets had said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days, even if someone told you you would not believe. Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The people invited them to speak further about these things in the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Good morning. I love a good story. You know, I love a good book, a good movie that has a point to it, where you try to figure out what the author's saying and, and see what they're trying to get across what the main point of that story is. I remember being told years ago, The Wizard of Oz, that the book, clearly the main point is there's no place like home. But that when they made the movie, some people had a political agenda, a financial agenda, and that the point of the movie is a little different. It's we should be following the gold standard, right? Follow the yellow brick road in our financial policies as a nation. So there's messages, you know, that are come across in movies. I, 
One of my favorites is Lord of the Rings, and there's wonderful messages in there about the corruption of power, the importance of friendship, and the ability of an individual who has courage to impact the world. Some stories are really hard to figure out. (laughs) Some stories don't seem to have a point. But when we get to God's great story, His story, history, and what He's been working out throughout history, His point is not hard to find. (laughs) It's clear that the main point of God's story is Jesus and the redemption that comes through Him. And Paul is so captured by this story that this man who was an enemy of the gospel, who hated Christians and who decided he would do everything to kill and destroy the Christian faith, his life turned around and he got so captured by the gospel that he began to live his life for it and in our passage today tells us his story. He's become part of God's great story. So today as we listen in on Paul's first recorded sermon, we get the opportunity to listen in on what's, what God has done in his heart as he's sharing God's great story with us. And what's wonderful about it is, as we listen in, we get to see what it means to be part of God's story, and we get the encouragement to live as part of his greater, incredible story. Pray with me. Lord, as we look together at this text And we look at the story that Paul is sharing with the Jews and then the Gentiles. And his heart and his passion that we would enter into that story and live for that story. Lord, may your spirit move in our souls in a way where we are captured like Paul was by this incredible story you've been writing throughout history. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as God works out his story in our lives, one thing we see is how he prepares the way. God prepares the way. And we see that as Paul begins to share his message here. First of all, we've seen already how God prepared Paul himself. Remember how Paul, again, was on the road to Damascus. He was out to capture and kill Christians. From his perspective, life was about what he was raised with. And that was his narrow world until Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and turned him around and allowed him to become part of the greater story. And then he sent him into the wilderness. God sent him into the wilderness for somewhere around 10 years so that he could be humbled, so that he could become a pliable servant in God's hand. And he gave him a heart for the gospel. And then he led him to Antioch the sending church where he was commissioned, and he and Barnabas were commissioned for the gospel ministry, and he got to be part of a strong community of faith for an entire year, teaching and growing and learning together. God prepared his servant, just like God prepared each one of us and placed us where he wants us to be part of his greater story. God also prepared the place Paul, in this passage, is in Pisidian Antioch. I want to show you a map and just kind of orient you to where this is. Now, 
Paul and Barnabas had been sent from Antioch in Syria, and there that church commissioned them and sent them out, and they went from there down to Cyprus and then up through Perga, and then here to Pisidian Antioch, which is essentially the very center of modern-day Turkey. This place was a place that was considered the second city of the Roman Empire as declared by Caesar Augustus. And he built a huge temple to himself, the Temple of Augustus, so that people could worship the emperor because that was part of what the whole Roman world did. They, ro- they worshipped the emperor as Lord. So it was a place that was ripe to hear about the gospel. And then there's something very interesting, a connection that's been made about Pisidian Antioch because I asked myself, well, why did Paul pass up Perga and Italia and these other fine cities? Why did he go straight to Pisidian Antioch? Well, as one writer said, an inscription found at Pisidian Antioch strongly suggests a connection between this city and Sergius Paulus, the proconsul on the island of Cyprus, who they started their journey at, the proconsul who heard and believed the message of Paul and Barnabas earlier in chapter 13. The proconsul may have encouraged Paul and Barnabas to travel to Pisidian Antioch, possibly with the letter of introduction, in order to bring the Christian message to members of his extended family there. Now, we don't know that for sure. That's, that's some speculation. But it's interesting to me that God was working to guide Paul to the exact place he wanted him to be in all the Roman world. He's led him to Pisidian Antioch as the place where he was to share the gospel. So God prepared the servant. He prepared the place, and he also prepared the opportunity. As Marcia just read, Paul and Barnabas show up in the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch, and, and then the leader of the synagogue says, hey, do you have any words of encouragement for us? And Paul's like, yeah, <laughs> I got some things to say. You see, God will go before us to prepare us. When we enter into his great story, when we choose to say, yes, Lord, I'm your servant, not my will, but yours be done. God will open the doors. He will prepare places and opportunities for you to serve him. Rod and I love this verse. We say it a lot, but I'll say it again. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his poiema, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he's prepared us, which the good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you realize that everywhere you go? God's prepared you for the situation and then is opening up opportunities for you to serve him. Good works that he's prepared beforehand. If we only would have eyes to see it. Just in the last couple of weeks, I was having lunch with a friend and, and uh, the waitress came over and I was just chatting with her, asked her name and just talking with her. And I said, so are you from around here? And she said, well, I happen to be wearing a Cole Community Church shirt. And she said, well, yeah, I'm from around here. I actually went to your school, Cole Christian School, as elementary she, before they combined and made Cole Valley. And I said, oh, wow, that's great. Are you involved in any fellowship now? And she said, oh, no. So I thought, okay, Lord, you know, what do you want me to do with this? And 
she came back she and to service, and I was just saying, oh, seems like an opportunity, Lord, but I don't know what it is. And I just said, hey, is, is there anything I can pray for for you? And she just, her eyes got big and said, uh. I said, well, why don't you think about it? You know, when you come back, you can tell me if you think of anything. A few minutes later, she came back to our table, and she said, I have something. I have something you can pray for. I said, what is it? She said, my two kids just lost their grandfather, and they're really hurting. Could you pray for them? And I said, absolutely, I would love to. Now, I don't know what kind of seeds that might plant or how God might work, but, but all I'm saying is I didn't do anything. God set that up. God did that all, and he's preparing the way, and life gets pretty exciting when you enter into his story, and you're just looking for the opportunities that he has prepared ahead of time for every one of us in our worlds. Now Paul goes on to talk about the point of the story, which is Jesus. And in his sermon, he talks through who Jesus is. I want to read part of it, starting in verse 17, as he says this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm... He led them out of it, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. By the way, a little footnote. Who's talking? Saul a man of the tribe of Benjamin (laughs) who has now been transformed sharing the gospel. And when he had removed him, verse 22, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now in all the Old Testament, this is what Paul chose to focus on. What's this communicate? Well, that God redeemed Israel from Egypt, gave them the land of Israel, gave them what they asked for, a king, and then gave them a better king in David, a man after God's own heart. He's communicating who God really is. Sometimes we get a view of the God of the Old Testament that he's somehow cruel or we, have, we think he's different than the New Testament God. He's not. As Paul's saying here, he's a redeeming God a loving God who provides exactly what we need as he had provided exactly what Israel needed at the right time. And then he gets to the point, verse 23. Of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought forth to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He brought exactly what Israel needed at the right time. The story of God was building up to this time of bringing Jesus, and he brought Jesus, and he truly is the one that God promised all the way along throughout the Old Testament. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything from before Jesus points to him, and everything after Jesus points back to him in history. And let me just give you a little aside here. As he goes on to talk about it, he talks about some real historical proof about Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Some Christians kind of think, well, you know, Christianity, you kind of live by blind faith. I gave my heart to Jesus, but I got to check my mind out because science really doesn't agree with the Bible and, and history doesn't really agree with the Bible. And well, I just want to say, brothers and sisters, that's not true. The gospel, the God, God's story, the Bible is true truth. It's absolutely true. Christianity lines up, is, and it's true historically and scientifically in every way. Scientists today try to go beyond what they can observe and make conclusions that seem to contradict the Bible, but if there are contradictions either between what we see in the Scriptures and what we see in science or in history, let me say that either our view of the Bible is wrong or our view of history and science is wrong. They have to agree because this is true truth. They will not contradict each other. But let me say this. Be careful about taking science at face value and writing off the scriptures somehow or your, how you view them. Be careful about that because Honestly, if you really start reading some of the best scientists, the best scientists are very uncertain about almost everything. They're very unsure. Now, what gets communicated to us is that, oh, science knows it all, and they've got it all figured out. No, they don't. So just please understand that the truth, the gospel, Jesus, there is incredibly good historical evidence for the truth. Verse 24 and 25, he goes on to talk about John the Baptist came in history, and we can trust that reality. And then he goes on to say what happened to Jesus. Verse 26, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us, Israel, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Think about this. He's in the synagogue, and he says, By the way, the leaders of our faith ignored the fact what the prophets say, and it was read every Sunday. They ignored it, and they missed him. They didn't recognize the Messiah who came. It's easy to miss him. He's making the point that we have a choice and we need to choose because the leaders in Jerusalem missed it. They rejected Jesus and condemned him. Then he shares the gospel very clearly, his understanding of the gospel, verse 28 and following. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul says, here's the gospel. Jesus was executed. He died. He was buried, but he was raised, and then he appeared to many. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he appeared to over 500 at one time. And notice what he says. This is some 18 years after Jesus was crucified. But at the end of that verse, verse 31, I believe it is, he says, he appeared to many who are now his witnesses. They were still alive. Paul says, you want to disprove that? 
They're still alive. Talk to them. And again, I just want to make the point, this is valid historical evidence. There were many eyewitnesses to what happened. How do you believe anything that happened in the past? You weren't there. You have to rely on what somebody else said. I would venture to guess pretty much everybody in this room believes that John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln in the Ford Theater that day. We don't disagree with that, right? Well, how many witnesses were there actually to that? Not very many, but we believe it because it's historically grounded. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he, was appe- he appeared to more than 500, and for many years after, they were still alive, and you could go talk to them. <laughs> the evidence is pretty great that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? It's true. It's true. And then he goes on to say that Jesus fulfilled the promises in the Old Testament. He quotes three different passages in the Old Testament directly. Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, to say, look, Jesus is the point of God's story. He was preparing for it all along. He is the center line of history. All of the history of Israel had pointed to the coming of Jesus as Savior. And in fact, when he did come, the story actually expanded to beyond Israel to all of humanity, every person, as we'll see in a moment. So that God's story isn't just the story of the Jews, is it? It's our story. It's the great story that explains all of what's gone on in all of history. We get to be part of that, brothers and sisters. So what is our place in the story? How does Paul go on to include us in the story? Well, he makes very clear what God offers first. God offers us forgiveness and wholeness. Forgiveness and wholeness. Verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and, secondly, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. First, he says, what Jesus brought to the world, to all the world, is forgiveness of sins. But this isn't just for the Jews. This is for everyone because we all need forgiveness, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every human being has a sense of right and wrong. Now, I know our postmodern world loves to say everything's relative. You define your own morality your way. How dare you impose your morality on me? There are no absolutes. But again, think about that for a minute. That is an absolute statement. There are no absolutes. Oh, wait a minute. Do you realize what you're saying here? And then you take the most relativistic person out there, bring him to me, and if I steal something from them, they are going to know they've been wronged, right? (laughs) Because they have a sense of right and wrong. Every human being does. We do. And our world is filled with anxiety and guilt because we know we're not right. And deep down, we know deep down we all need forgiveness no matter how much we try to avoid thinking that or believing that. 
I like the way Tim Keller addresses this. He says, despite the subterfuge, the hiddenness, deep down we know we are sinners. We know that there's something seriously wrong with every one of us. This produces severe imbalances in our psychological life from which flow many ills, eating disorders, anxiety, substance abuse, overwork, anger. We may find ourselves so needy for affirmation that we stay in the wrong or even abusive relationships. The solution to all this? If we confess our sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And N.T. Wright continues the thought as he says this, The new world which God is creating through the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about forgiveness of sins at every level. Your sins and mine. The wickedness, the folly, the failing, the rebellion, the shameful, dirty, lying, cheating, glittering, sophisticated, flashy, corporate, international, global, local, personal, individual sins. That about covers it, right? (laughs) The whole lot. It's all dealt with. It's all dealt with through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is great news, that forgiveness is offered, Paul says, to all of us, to the whole world. And then he says something interesting that's translated in most of our Bibles as being freed. Verse 39, Let every, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which he could not be freed from by the law of Moses. But the word there is often translated justification or justified. Now that's a big theological word. I think it simply means wholeness in two ways. I think there's two sides to this word as I see it in the scriptures. Wholeness in your relationship with God, that we could be restored to relationship with him. That's what this word has to deal with. And restored to how God created us to be. In other words, to root out the power of sin in our lives so that we can become more the people that we originally created to be, to root out our terrible self-centeredness that harms ourselves and others. Much of my life has been naturally about manipulating others to approve of me, and God has been rooting that out of my life in some powerful ways so that I could be whole and love more freely. That's part of what God does and wants to do in every one of us, and he wants to root out society's ills as well. Wars, genocide, crime. Jesus came as the center point of history in the middle of God's story to bring forgiveness and wholeness to individuals and to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a story I want to be part of. I want to join into that. I don't want to live for my own paltry story, but I want to live for his. And he goes on to say, we have a choice then. In his message, he goes on to make it clear we have a choice. Verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And then many people came together, and it says at the end of verse 43, as they spoke with them, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. We have a choice. 
We have a choice to either scoff or to choose grace. He makes that choice very, very clear. Interesting that the most religious people of the day chose to scoff mostly. They mostly said, no, we've got it figured out. We like the control that our religion gives us. (laughs) We don't want to surrender to God's great story. A scoffer, what is a scoffer? They may be very religious like they were here. A scoffer is simply someone who says, ha, I've got it figured out. I'm not going to believe what you tell me. I'm only going to trust in what I think is right, and I will not surrender to anyone or anything else. That's a scoffer. But others humbled themselves to receive the grace of God, the gift of forgiveness and wholeness in Jesus. We have a choice, and Paul makes that clear, and every one of us has. And you may have felt like, oh, I've been a Christian for a long time, but have you surrendered to his grace? Have you received it, what he's offered to you? Because, as he goes on to say now, the good news is for anyone. He's been sharing with the Jews up to this point. But look at what happens at the end here. We've already read it. But the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and reviling him. Interesting. They had invited him to speak in their synagogue. And now they're like, oh boy, did we make a mistake. And now he's trying to speak, and they're confronting him and reviling him and slandering him as he's trying to talk and shouting him down and not letting him speak at all. So what happens? He goes on to the Gentiles and begins sharing the good news with them. And when the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that amazing? The gospel is open to everyone. To everyone. Now I want to make a comment about that last statement. As many as were appointed to, a, to eternal life believed. You may go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hey, that sounds like, that sounds like predestination. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. But wait a minute. Paul was just exhorting them to receive the gospel and receive the truth and make a choice. Do they have a choice? Yes. gospel says that. As many as will believe will be saved. So wait a minute. What is it, Luke? What is it, Paul? Well, it's both, brothers and sisters. There's, how can we, with our finite minds, think we can figure it all out? There's a lot that's mystery that's beyond our limited thinking. Both are taught in Scripture that we have to make a choice and that God chooses whom he chooses. I don't know how it fits together, but I know he saved me. (laughs) The way I put it together in my mind, I had to make a choice. I had to choose Jesus. But as I look back, knowing how blind and self-centered and selfish I was, there was no way I would have chosen him if God hadn't worked in my life to draw me to that place to know him. It's a mystery, but it's a reality. The truth is, though, the good news is for everyone, and we need to do all we can to offer that good news to everyone we can. So how should we do that? Just some closing observations here about sharing our faith, because we're probably not going to be preaching to a group of 
Jews in a synagogue necessarily, but he does identify with them. Our fathers, verse 17, our fathers in the wilderness, our fathers in Egypt. He, he says, I'm one of you. He makes a connection. If you want to be a light for the gospel, listen to people's stories and make a personal connection. We are all the same. We all have the same basic struggles and make a connection with them. Make it personal. Identify with them. And then he goes on to focus on what God has done in history and in his own life, ultimately. He shares that a number of times in other sermons. And that's a good encouragement to us. Share what God has done. Focus on that, not what your church has done or whatever, but focus on what God has done. And then make clear what God offers. God offers forgiveness. And God offers wholeness to your life what, to restore you to how, what you really long to be, what you hunger and thirst for. And then make clear to the person the choice that they have to respond to God. They have a choice to respond. Let me say this. If you haven't made that choice, maybe you've thought you were a Christian, maybe you've gone to church for years, maybe not, but if you've never really embraced the gospel and made yourself, your story, part of God's story, stepped into God's story, that now is an opportunity to do that. Now is the opportunity. Now is the time. Jesus is the truth. He's the fulfillment of all of history. He came so that we could be forgiven and be made whole. So please don't put that off. Now I want to close in prayer. I want to pray for all of us, but I want to pray specifically for those who maybe don't know Jesus, and then we're going to take communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those here who have not fully embraced you as the point of all history, and in particular as the point of their own story. The one who came, who died, who rose again, and who lives today as a living Lord who wants to be involved in their lives and be a personal friend and Savior and offers forgiveness and wholeness. May they pray with me, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to be part of your grand story. Thank you for the forgiveness you give through Jesus. And Lord, for all of us who maybe already know you, may we begin to move out of our own story and more fully into yours. You prepared good works. You've prepared us for this story, and may we join in to what you are doing and have the joy and excitement of being part of the adventure of bringing the gospel to a world that so needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.